My name is Dr. Josephine Palermo, and my superpower is creating business cultures that transform organizations team by team. With my co-host, Dr. Ian Butterworth, we speak to philosopher Ole Hofken on The Good Life. We explore the concept of resonance and what it tells us about creating a life of meaning and happiness. We hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Hey, Josie. Um, how are you doing? I'm great, Ian. Nice to see you. It's been a while. I miss you. <laughs> 2023 uh, is rushing ahead, uh, which is an opportune time to pause and consider what it's all about. And um, I'm really delighted to welcome Dr. Ole Hofken to our discussion today, who uh, is a visiting scholar from Germany, who uh, is a philosopher, and his research interests are the good life. Um so Ole and I connected through mutual friends in Hamburg. Um, I, I've known people in Germany since I was a young 20-year-old backpacking around Europe. And um, here I am several decades later, still connected to those wonderful people. Um, and uh, Ole is too. So when uh, Ole identified that he was coming to Melbourne, um, he got in touch with me and we've spent a bit of time together. Uh, it's been a real pl pleasure to have a chance to share Melbourne and uh, central Victoria with Ole and to learn something of his life and times um, and also his uh, interests in philosophy. So Ole, I hope I'm going to do you justice by explaining something about your interests. I'm actually reading from an abstract from a paper you gave at um, Deakin. Okay, um, hi. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, thanks a lot. I'm just saying hi now as well. And, yes. Um, thanks for having actually, me. Actually, that's actually a pretty good segue for me to stop talking and uh, invite you to say something about yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot. Um, so, as you already said, Ian, I'm uh, currently postdoctoral researcher in philosophy. I'm at Heidelberg University in Germany and um, now in the last week of a research stay here at Melbourne at Deakin University. And um, yeah, the question of the good life, I mean, it's a old venerable philosophical question. And this is one of the topics I'm working on, having some work in progress more or less in that, in that direction at the moment. And um, Ian, you promised that you would uh, read something from an abstract of a paper I have, so I'm, I'm uh, glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the question of what a good or happy life or flourishing human existence consists in has been a preoccupation of philosophy, religion, and most recently, psychological thought. Um, and it, it looks at the choices we have to make individually and collectively, consciously, and unconsciously about how to live our lives. And um, when I learned that you were coming, I was very interested to uh, have a chance to talk with you on this uh, podcast because the discussions that Josie and I have on here are linked to the fact that humans spend a lot of our time in organizations um, even if we're not sitting in organizations as much as we used to, because we're doing a lot more remote working, mm -hmm. uh, we're certainly having to take part in the strategic planning processes and the rituals and the, 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 the conscious and the unconscious, the spoken and the unspoken cultural elements of organizations. Mm -hmm. Um, we're expected to go to the barbecues and the, the, the ceremonies where people leave or join or all of those things. So I was really interested for us to have this discussion about what makes for a good life in an organization um, and, and how can people flourish in organizations. And um, I'm really interested in your interest in 
philosophy, but also the fact that you are interested in evolutionary anthropology and psychology. And I mean, Josie and I come from a background in psychology, Josie, mm -hmm. organizational, me, community. Um, but it's a, it's a rare opportunity for us to actually think about what makes for a good organizational experience, talking with a real life uh, certified philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. Um, so um, can you tell us about the good life from your perspective and tell us a little bit about your interest in evolution? Um, yeah, over to you. Sure. Yeah, thanks a lot. So maybe just to sketch the perspective or maybe the perspectives that I'm coming from. So you've um, mentioned already this um, evolutionary anthropologic, anthropological take on the good life. And I take this as part of, um, let's say, let's call it an objective perspective on what it means to have a good or happy or fulfilled life. Um, so this is one part. I think this is one of the perspectives we, we can and have to take. And the other is more the subjective side. So the actual how does it feel like? What is it like for the people um, in the societies, in any given society or culture, to lead a happy and fulfilled life? And um, what I'm trying to do in a way is to bring in my work and from a philosophical perspectives or from a philosophical background, these two perspectives together. And um, you mentioned you are interested in um, how this plays out on the organizatorial level, on the level of organizations. Um, I'm happy to learn a lot from you, maybe also in this respect, because um, what I'm so far have been have been focused on is, um, as I said, the subjective and the objective side. And on the subjective side, it's more on a very individual level. So very um, individual accounts of um, what people um, see as fulfilling lives. And I'm working with a certain um, philosophical, sociological approach there, which is called resonance theory. We may get into that later as well. And on the objective side, as you already um, mentioned, I'm more looking from the very um, general level of cultures and societies. So what are the basic um, cultural um, setups in a certain um, society that govern how we live our lives and how this how is that developed? Ole, I wanted to, um, before before we go into that, because I really want to uh, go a bit deeper into what, what those cultural aspects are and what those subjective aspects are, but a lot of people listening may not even know what the study of philosophy actually entails because unfortunately in Australia we no longer have philosophy departments we you know when I was going through university I did a major in philosophy at Swinburne University and we had a philosophy department mm -hmm. but unfortunately we sort of um, philosophers are still there but they're not as uh, pronounced so before we go into that can you explain what, what is the methodology? What does it mean to study philosophy or, or, or the, the study of um, concepts um, from a philosophical perspective? Yeah, great. Thanks. So um, that's a very good question. And I think it's not so easy to answer because philosophical methodologies are very varied. And um, what I've been hinting to with um, this subjective objective distinction, I think these are two major um, approaches we can take on any phenomenon we want to understand in philosophy but also in everyday life or in more applied contexts or in scientific contexts. And I think the only thing I would stress um, in a philosophical methodology right now or in this context, as you said, we're working with concepts. So we try to develop um, concepts that can make sense of certain phenomena in our lives or in the world. And um, other than that, we are um, in, a, um, in a cooperation with everything else going on. I mean, practices in um, science, maybe in arts, 
all kinds of expressions of different perspectives. Um, this is all possible to take into the picture here. So it's a very, in this sense, it's a very general, um, multifaceted um, methodology. Um, and of course, I can't do all of this uh, in, in, in tackling this question. So what I'm working with are these two uh, major uh, perspectives I try to integrate. And um, um, like, as I said, the subjective and the objective. And um, on the object objective side, this idea of um, our background as an evolved species and also the idea of an evolution of culture in a way. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, Ole. Uh, yeah. One thing I've noticed in modern sort of social media land um, is people are confusing the subjective and the objective. A lot of people say now, oh, I really feel that that's not the case. People aren't actually, they put their feelings onto things, especially when they're critiquing um, deep issues, social mm -hmm. issues. And I've noticed it a lot in the US discourse people when they're interviewed on tv or whatever they say oh i know i feel that it's different to that they're not actually skilled in testing their assumptions at an objective level it's all about feelings yes so that's i think that's a deep philosophical question how do the subjective the intersubjective and the objective hang together and how do we get from the subjective i mean we all live our lives we all are immersed in our very own stream of experience so we can't get out of this so more or less subjective sphere um, but the question is how do we come from there together how do we how do we inter like um, triangulate as it's sometimes called triangulate the different subjective perspectives into a, an intersubjective framework which then also encompasses some kind of objectivity which is of course never perfect and um, in a way, this is this is one of the background questions that stand always in the background of this uh, methodology and this approach. I think something that this is a big question for us every time we we are all over the place in our lives. Um, and this is maybe specifically something that philosophers worry about and that try to get a gra grasp on on this question. And one thing I think is important is that. Um, we can't have the one without the other. So um, the subjective perspective of live, lived experience, as it's also often called, uh, or this this is how I feel like, this is how I feel this is, I think it uh, we would make a mistake if we would um, push it aside as merely subjective. We have to start from there. So in a way, we could say this has to be the first word in, um, in, in any kind of an inquiry or endeavor we, we or like intellectual endeavor we start with. So this has to be taken into account. Um, but it cannot be the last word. So we have to get to this kind of intersubjective um, triangulation or intersubjective um, um, matching or comparison of different perspectives to get to um, a, a way of speaking about what we want to get a gr grasp on. For example, the good life. You could also go on with a lot of other phenomena as well. I think we're going to come back to that because so much work in organizational development is testing the perceptions of various people that are in a room or involved in some sort of brainstorming session or troubleshooting or dealing with some sort of organizational um, crisis, perhaps, in terms of how people are relating to each other. I mean, that's a very, it's almost like a therapeutic process at a group level to try to help people move from the feeling state into looking at things objectively and being open to understand how things look to other people. Um, so we'll come back to that because I think that's core to so much organizational development work. But let's, before we do that, I think it'd be useful to now hear from you about what this notion of the good life means, because I suspect that so much organizational work to build a strong culture and to help people feel valued and included, it's all premised on some assumptions about what a good life might look and feel like for people working together 
in an organisation, whether they be volunteers or paid people or whatever. So ha- having talked about the, 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 the complex relationships between perceptions and feelings, both at the individual and collective level, how does all that link to this understanding of the good life? I'd love to learn from you about what the good life means. Okay, great. Thanks. So, of course, I can't um, give the last and definitive answer of what the good life means. And um, all I can offer you is um, concepts that people have come up with, as we said. You know, um, philosophers are people who try to somehow craft concepts to grasp something that is important to us. And uh, what I'm working there with is a very recent concept that I mentioned before, the concept of resonance. So I'm not really going very deep in the deep back in the philosophical tradition of thinking about the good life, but I'm working with something very recent, um, which is maybe has developed over the last 50 years, which is uh, the blink of an eye in the in the history of philosophy. And... Um, this concept of resonance, as as I as I'm working with it, um, is explicitly developed from the perspective of lived experience of how people experience their relation to the world. So it's all about relation, um, the experience relation you have to the world, which means um, to other people in the world, to other objects in the world, things in the world, to the situations you are in, the buildings you are in, the landscapes you are in, and so on and so forth. Um, And um, the idea here is that this concept of resonance is able to characterize a certain quality of relating to the world that is a, an, an essential part of what it means to go, to lead a good life. So you don't have to be in a resonant relationship all the time. That's not that's not the the idea here. It's just the idea that to live a life that is fulfilled, um, people have to make this this relation these experiences of resonance. And what is meant with that is that a relation of resonance to whatever your other in a certain situation may be. It's may, it may be a thing, it may be a person, it may be an organization. Um, a relation of resonance is one where you as the subject and the other are in some kind of answer relationship. So it's a give and take, it's a back and forth. You give something to it and you get something back from it. And um, neither you dominate the other nor the other dominates you. So of course, very, very, uh, um, a very natural setting we might think of here is social relationships between two people. Um, uh, we would think of such a resonant relationship between two people interacting as um, something that yeah we would describe as fulfilling. And um, another aspect is that um, people when having these kind of resonant relationships, feel themselves being transformed through this relationship. So um, it can be very mundane. It doesn't have to be a, a deep existential transformation. But if you um, have an, um, a resonant um, intercourse or in, in, uh, um, a chat, for example, just a chat with someone, you don't feel that you're totally the same afterwards. So you somehow have been changed. You are somehow another person, maybe very incrementally, but maybe very, very deeply. So this is this, um, this idea of this transformative aspect of it. And you also feel that you are able to transform the other that is, that is um, on the other, like on the, the your opposite in that, very, in, in that um, situation. Um, just just one last point. So it's this give and take. It's this transformative aspect to it. And um, I mentioned the b- example of two people interacting, but as I said, it could also be something else. So um, Hartmut Rosa, that's the sociologist from Germany who came up with this concept. He also often discusses resonant relationships with pieces of music, for example. So you listen to the piece of music and it changes you somehow. It gives you something, but 
you also put yourself into it. So you, you give something in a way to in listening to this piece of music of yourself and it won't be the same in your lived experience afterwards. It will mean something else to, to you. So it could be a, a resonant relationship with people, but it also could be a resonant relationship with something inanimate. That's the basic idea. I love it. See, philosophers, they ask the best questions. This is why I like the, um, the uh, art of philosophy. Um, I, I was interested in that notion of uh, resonance. It's a lovely collective notion. I think, I think in organisational development, we are very much looking at more collective ways of working and doing and thinking in organisations. So that, so that, that is some, something we're thinking about. But particularly in the give and take... Is the because you said that you and you and others or you and an object are in an answer situation? Does that require you to ask? A, is there a question in that? Is it question answer or is it openness and answer? Openness and answer. What are the conditions there? Um, that's a good question. I think it could be both. And um, what is most important there is um, the openness. So this this um, somehow open open um, intentional stance at a philosopher, as a philosopher would call it, yeah. the open um, stance you take towards whatever may come along, and you might have an answer to a question uh, to to ask to that other, or not. It could also be just an open situation where you whatever you're lying on a. Um, on a meadow maybe looking into the sky and you don't have any particular um, question there right now but it could still spin into this resonant relationship to whatever is around you at that moment and you were also uh, mentioning the conditions of resonance and yes. this is this is then somehow um, where the objective part of this uh, the objective perspective comes into play so as I said, this was this framework was um, or this conceptualization of the good life was proposed by a German sociologist. So he's also interested in Hartmut Rosa. He's also interested in objective, if you may call it that, um, societal structures and how they enable or um, disable um, experiences of resonance. And again. So what he's looking at is only the conditions of possibility. He does not say that we can manufacture resonance experience in some way. We cannot just, we cannot force them. This is like another important aspect of this, of this concept. All we, can ha all we can do is create open spaces and we can do this more or less well in a society for these kinds of experiences to be able to happen. And this is what is then described as these conditions, the, I mean, it's even objective conditions of resonance and um, all kinds of institutions or, and organizations, of course, play, come into play here. I mean, and what kind of family structures do we live? And what kind of organizations do we live? What kind of institutions do we have? Um, how is the eco economic life organized? To what, to what degree is it, um, is it commodified? And, and to what degree is it a market system? Um, and all these questions. Yes. It's, I think your, your questions in your research is incredibly timely because we're in the middle of what is being described as the great resignation uh, where people are leaving um, work situations in droves probably because they want to pursue the good life. And this, is, this is something that I think uh, COVID the, the pandemic maybe has forced people to reconcile with. The, the other thing which is happening a lot in the United States is this notion of ghosting. We're used to people ghosting each other on Tinder, but now young people especially who are joining organisations where they're treated like commodities and despite all the the organizational rhetoric about, you know, we're a great team and we're here for you and our organization's dedicated to making the world a better place. These people feel completely stuck in meaningless transactional relationships where their time and value as people is, they feel is, is, uh, is discounted. 
And so they just stop turning up for work. It's a new phenomenon. But organisations are being ghosted by people. And I suspect one of the answers is, one of the reasons is, they're not experiencing the good life as you've described it. There is certainly no give and take. There's certainly no, certainly no sense of resonance. I mean, all the work that Josie does, and I to some extent, around creating organisations that are you know, safe to fail, where you create a culture where there is a learning element there, where people's experiences actually contribute to some sort of organisational transformation. That's certainly not happening for a lot of people. And so they just stop turning up for work and find something else that they want. Uh, it's just a comment, really. I think your work is very relevant to modern society. Yes, so, um, and just taking up what you've said, um, so one thing I think that we can all observe in modern societies that it's very hard to ha to give resonance space and then to create possibilities conditions of resonance in modern mass societies um, and maybe I can take up a bit of the history there of this concept um, so the background it developed from is uh, from the critical theory which is also like a venerable philosophical tradition or social critical tradition from Europe um, in beginning in the second or developing in the second half of the 20th century and already there people have made I mean with the with the rise of modern mass consumer societies these thinkers have issued the diagnosis of a general alienation in modern societies and um, what then Hartmut Rosa did with his 2016 book, Resonance, is he said, okay, I want to develop something as a, that is a positive counter-concept to this um, diagnosis of alienation. So these kind of um, traditional critical theorists, he, he says, they were very um, focused on the negative. They were only talking about these conditions of alienation. But the question is, what are we alienated from, actually? What is lacking if we feel alienated in a modern world? Um, so these diagnoses are not, are not new in a way, and it's just, you know, new con conceptual refinements coming to it. But yes, of course, they are, I think, more um, urgent than ever to, to apply to modern societies. And um, what I might just like Mike want to add there just to give a short um, a quick view into that is I think thinking about these conditions of resonance in modern mass societies on like the objective conditions of it this is where this evolutionary perspective might be useful as well I mean some of the some of you might may be um, familiar with this general idea of evolutionary psychology that we have developed as um, primates in um, the so-called um, environment of evolutionary adaptation, which is uh, the African East African savanna, in the last five million to two hundred thousand years ago, and we have developed there to live in small groups of flexible groups um, with flexible composition of um, twenty to thirty people, and um, with something like a broader social network be behind that. And um, if like our brain is geared toward that, or our we as, as a psychophysical system are, are geared toward that, then it's in some way, way no wonder that it's very hard to um, establish fulfilling or resonant social relationships in a very anonymous um, large-scale society, which does not mean that we have to go back to this, um, this small-scale uh, way of living, but um, this may help us to understand why the conditions of resonance are um, so hard to establish in modern societies, this, this evolutionary perspective. Mm -hmm. Ole, this is, this is, I've got so many questions going on in my head. Um, I, do, I do want to follow this track of what are the con objective conditions that, that create you know, opportunities for resonance. And I love that you're saying that we, all we can do is set up the conditions. We can't guarantee that subjective experience because that makes so much sense as well. Because I think in organisations, a lot of leaders are grappling with um, 
you know, how to create spaces in their um, organisational culture, even in their built environment. So a lot of, uh, for example, a lot of local governments I know are, are looking at their office environment and and how, how they can uh, create built the built environment in a way that creates more um, opportunities for people to feel connected to each other and probably to I hadn't thought about to elements to other objects but you know art and you know for example I, I you, you yeah. I was recently at the city of Casey and when you walk into their building the whole front of their building is an art installation for example and they change it up and you know you can tell they're trying to get the community to feel something as you walk in the building are there are there conditions that you know perhaps are more likely to to create that sense of connection I'm, I'm talking about it as connection that's my bias perhaps mm -hmm. resonance is was more the word for you mm, yes i think this is all we can actually work with um to say okay this makes it more probable this has a li higher likelihood to to um to to create this these, these kinds of experiences but yeah we can never manufacture them we can never force them and um interestingly so what what um rosa in his in his um sociological analysis points to is that exactly this um this uh, approach of trying to make um resonance attainable resonance experience attainable is um, often a guaranteed resonance killer <laughs> so he calls this the this the the triple a approach um, to to life and modern societies and um, with triple a he means um, making um, whatever is desirable attainable achievable and i forgot the last a sorry but it's basically about attainability and um Resonance experiences, I think this has been become clear already, is are are, um, are essentially unattainable. Um, unverfügbar is the German word there he uses. And um, in trying to, to um, make yeah a new object out of it, in trying to make something, um, to make it attainable, as we, for example, make a resource attainable, um, um, we often destroy exactly what we want to get. Um, an example would be people um, having ha like ma making a vacation at a certain place, let's say Paris, and they totally want to have these deep um, um, experiences connecting to the place or connecting to the vibe or the people there. And because they have to expect especially these um, these expectations um, once they are there it's very hard for them or even uh, impossible for them to just be open and just uh, get into the vibe because they already have all these fixed preconceptions in their head and this triple a approach this is Rosa's big thesis is um, governing a lot of, of our approach um, in modern western societies um, towards the world around us both the inanimate and the animate world as you're talking um the dust from my undergraduate sociology is lifting and I'm so drawn to talk about some of those early sociologists that were just doing all that amazing work about false consciousness. And it occurs to me that, you know, in organizations we try to create a good or an empowering organization would be one in which the leadership is devoted to creating a space where people can have an authentic consciousness and unpack the social learning that may have polluted, if, if I may use that term, their authentic sense of being in the world. Um, but I guess a lot of organisations aren't interested in that and they may even try to impose yet another false conscience, consciousness into their workforce to, to ensure that people are compliant or that they produce all the widgets that are supposed to be produced every hour. Um, Josie, Ian, do you I'm want to say I'm going to be the advocate because I actually have a much more optimistic view of oh, organisations. Oh, me too. Yeah. And I think that sometimes we lay all this on the head of 
leaders in organizations you know whose role is it anyway is it is it for example the state is it the government is it the is it the um, organization to create all of these conditions or is it the individual who's responsible Ole, I'm just wondering is there where does this sense of because what you're talking about is creating conditions that allow for openness which I mm-hmm. which I think I'm if I'm I'm probably simplifying that but but I can understand that because in many organisations, when I work with uh, particularly leaders and even, and particularly executive leaders, that's what we do to help them transform themselves into being better leaders is creating more openness in the way they think about leadership and their role. But whose responsibility is it? Because, you know, is it really can, – can we lay this on organisations? Because to your point, the minute you start to try to engineer this – is when you're you're almost overlaying all those biases that that mean you're not going to get there. Yeah. So um, um, the question of responsibility, um, I think, as with many broad societal question, it is questions. It is really um, the responsibility lies on all levels, on the levels of individuals, on the levels of of organizations, and on the levels of broader um, body politic, the, the, the society we make up, the, or the, the um, political system we live in. And um, um, as I said, this is work in progress. So, um, and it's not only work in progress for me, it's also work in progress for the other people, I think, in, in the philosophical, sociological world, trying to, to make this concept work somehow. Um, how to to tackle this in in practical context is of course very hard to to uh, to answer. Um, I think in a way this qu- this this concept is meant as something more as a guiding thread. So or um, what, what we or as a, as a star we can orientate ourselves towards. Um, as as I said, we can't force it, but we can of course um, try to make it possible to get there. And, and um, I think I think just just for you, Ale, just so because you, you may not be aware, in organisational development work, we use a lot of facilitation techniques that allow for emergent um, pr- uh, outcomes. So yeah. yeah, so and I think that that's setting up a condition for openness, and you know some of that that you know creating that sense of resonance, hopefully. But uh, and 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 often um, often you know. We, we often have to instruct leaders who perhaps want to be more directive and, um, you know, uh, account for time when teams come together or when groups of people come together. And what we're often recommending as organisational co- consultants um, is allow for more space. You know, don't mm-hmm. don't create an agenda that is minute by minute, um, you know, uh, Prescribed. Yeah, great. So that this is a great example. Yeah. For example, uh, this is a great example for um, trying to to make it possible on an organizational level. Um, but of course, organizations um, live within an ecosystem that is the broader society, and um, we also have basic general uh, cultural orientations there and um, ways of seeing the world and. Um, the idea, I think, is a bit that these kinds of, or or in other words, we have somehow broad notions of the good life, even even um, either implicitly or explicitly. And um, this this kind of conceptual framework, I think, is the is the attempt to give to develop somehow some concept of the good life that can just guide the the orientations of people in organizations, but also in broader. Um, um, political arenas or, or cultural arenas um, yeah but um, so it's basically the idea I think is that it can play out on all kinds of, of different levels of, of um, social complexity I'm yeah I'm fascinated by this discussion and uh, forgive my lapse into sociology 101 a few minutes ago it was just a really a, a thought bubble that I had but I'm Ole. I'm I'm reading a, a paper that you produced on evolution and the good life, and you've quoted an author called Grinder. Is it mm-hmm. the right name? Uh, who argue that the issue of the good life can be 
may be attributed to two major issues, which I think you've touched on a little bit. But one is, the first one is we are not designed by evolution for the sake of our quality of life and we are not designed to live in an industrialised society. I mean, I'm fascinated and quite struck by those two statements because it takes us right back to the savannah um, where our brains have evolved for the most of our existence. But I love the first one. We are not designed by evolution for the sake of our quality of life. Um, Josie, how does that play out in an organisation? Well, I'd like to know more about what that means, firstly. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, yeah. Perhaps we go to Ole. So maybe I can try to unpack this. Um, so the basic idea is that um, our feelings, our way of, of, of um, experiencing the world um, from a very objective perspective. So um, nobody knows why we actually have experiences, but we can take this for granted. It just comes about through our, in, in this in this otherwise inanimate world. Um, so our bodies uh, house some kind of mind and feeling um, consciousness. And um, this feeling consciousness, it has different uh, ways of experiencing the world. Um, either, yeah, maybe uh, characterized by states of fulfillment or happiness or resonance and um, others that are stressful. And um, what Grinde is pointing to is that um, the explanation why these states um, are there is just um, like from an evolutionary standpoint, it's just that um, um, it has evolved in such a way that we are motivated to act towards reproductive success. And that includes that we mustn't be happy all the time because if we are happy all the time, then we wouldn't like get out there to propagate our genes basically. So that's the very basic story. So this is what is meant with um, uh, evolution has not um, created us or designed us for um, quality of life. So um, that does not mean that it's, it's impossible to be happy. It just means that we have to be aware of these um, of the fact that just living by our nature is also not necessarily what makes us happy. So this is the first point. And then this problem was, of course, amplified by these so-called mismatches, which I've hinted to before, between um, the our evolved nature and um, our the, the, the conditions of life we now live in. And um, also, we are not doomed here. We are very um, cognitively sp uh, flexible species. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been able to create such large-scale societies with our let's say, hunter-gatherer mind. Um, so we have this flexibility, of course, also in us, but um, it's, it's hard to deal with it, that's to say the least. It is, it's hard to deal with, with, the, the, uh, with the life world in a, in a modern mass society. And um, um, I, I, maybe I just quote another, another nice uh, sentence from Grinde, which he says afterwards. Um, this is what he now takes as a um, as the conclusion out of this out of this diagnosis. So he goes on to say that biologically speaking, life revolves around the quandaries associated with survival and propagation. It is, however, up to us to give a damn about evolutionary or biological objectives and rather let happiness be the supreme purpose of life. Or, I mean, happiness is, is, is maybe a bit hedonistically put, but we could also say to have fulfilling lives or good, li good lives, to be this, the supreme purpose. And this is, I think, somehow the program that we can take out of this evolutionary perspective as well, to be, um, to be conscious of why it is hard to live a good life um, in, in modern mass societies, or why it is hard for, for humans at, at, at all in general. Um, but to somehow deal to deal consciously with these um, um, impediments we have and to try to deal with them and uh, um, not get lost in um, these kinds of quandaries of um, propagation and uh, status concerns and consumption. Thank you for that. that that's a great, um, uh, great um, explanation. And and you know, I, I I can see I can see that sometimes we do have to act in hedonistic ways because collectively that 
um, you know, I love it. that goes back to then looking at the intersubjectivity of that and then creating something that that is more mm-hmm. about a quality of life or good life for ourselves. Um, so sometimes that head and it starts in a hedonistic um, phenomenologic phenomenological <laughs> way and then goes out to to that more intersubjective space so um so i can see how for example um you know organizations are tuning into health and well-being at the very individual level in um to, to really understand how they can set up conditions that that help people flourish while at work and that is very much about the individual but collectively you you end up with conditions at an organizational level that that uh that have impacts for the whole organization and its outcomes and sustainability and even the planet so you know there are sort of these these ripple effects so i'm probably not using that your example of intersubjectivity well there but um but that's kind of what what i'm thinking about when I go to, to sort of apply it at an organizational level. Um, yes, and I also think that um, th- we could be, we can be optimistic about this. I mean, we don't mm. have really anything else uh, to, it's, it's be- always better to be optimistic than to be best pessimistic. <laughs> um, but um, so the, the hope I somehow have in, in um, uh, proceeding along this approach of getting together this kind of resonance theory, this subjective perspective of the good life and um, the evolutionary perspective um, and also sociological perspectives on the, um, let's call them objective conditions of of resonant relationships with the world. Um, So the the optimistic hope I have in there, maybe a naive hope, but um, that becoming aware of these of these um, processes that go on in the background. I mean, hedonistic lures of the modern world. This is part of also a mismatch that we are just um, overcharged by all these uh, hedonistic options we have in a modern world. I mean, again, we haven't evolved for that. I mean, sugar, alcohol, um, drugs are the, are the standard examples. And also all these kind of... Um, um, arenas of competition of um of intersub- of yeah competition between between people that have come up with the rise of a modern modern affluent society which um we also haven't like don't have the mental capacities really to to um to navigate in a way um to be aware of this um maybe is the first step to um be more moderate in our dealing with it so um um and this is again on the very general societal level, cultural level, but it can play out, of course, also in the intermediate level of organizations and how they deal with, for example, internal strifes for um, for competition um, uh, or cooperation. I'm tempted to rush out and copyright the name Resonance to set up to set up an organizational consulting company. Ah, yeah. So, so maybe just less the last less as the last um, um, point on this. So, this concept is really getting some traction right now in the in, uh-huh. like in the academic world in a way. But it's also already, and of course, I have to make this pun at some point. It's resonating beyond that, beyond the academic world. Um, in Europe, at least, you can see this. So, um, there are already um, conferences being held especially on that concept. So um, um, let's see where it's going to, where it's going to take us. Maybe this concept is going to be, um, this is this maybe becoming too much then and everybody uh, tries to work with it and then it's somehow doesn't have a sharp meaning anymore. This is always a, um, a threat, but I think the ma- next five to 10 years will show whether this concept will get, that it will get traction and usefulness and applicability um, in the academic world, but also beyond. So you you subjected us to a pun just then. I'm gonna I'm gonna get back at you. What's resonated with you about your visit to Australia and and Deakin? Why Deakin? Um, yeah. So why Deakin? Um, because I was working on uh, my PhD uh, two years ago, and um, there I was uh, working on this cons or this question of 
the integration of the objective and the subjective perspectives actually. So, um, and the subjective um, is um, also often called, we, I think we had this term already, the phenomenological perspective um, or the phenomenological take on um, life actually. And um, so this is the, the broader methodological uh, approach I'm working in. And I have some ideas there uh, how we could make this work. This is more than on the, on the very broad uh, methodological, very abstract methodological level. So it's not as applied as what we're talking um, about today, but I think it's still uh, relevant to understand how, these, how we can think about these questions. So this is what I, I was working on. And um, then I discovered um, just after um, finishing my PhD that there's another philosopher in the world who is um, um, doing actually the same thing, who is Jake Reynolds, who's a professor at, uh, of philosophy here at Deakin University. So once I got the postdoc position, it was just natural to come down here at one point. And of course, um, this is, an, this is for, for me, of course, in a professional example of resonance. <laughs> but other than that, um, I think it would be hard for me even to, to list all the things that have resonated with me uh, here in, in Melbourne and Australia beyond, uh, beyond just um, being able to, to work with um, who I really want to work with. Um, I'm hard pressed right now to, to, to mention anything. <laughs> so um, I have some, had some great musical experiences here. I had great uh, experiences just being in the city and cycling around Melbourne, which was which was really great fun for me, actually. A lot of people warned me of it, <laughs> but um, um, I really liked that, just taking in the vibe of this really massive place and this huge city um, with all kinds of different faces. I think that was very interesting. And traveling a bit around um, Australia was also nice, seeing a bit of the nature part as well, being at the ocean. Well, it's been it's been great to see you just land and hit the ground running and make the most of every single experience and opportunity. It's fantastic. Yeah, great. And thanks again for having this opportunity here also to, to talk about some of my, let's call it work in progress. <laughs> Ollie, it's awesome. been an absolute pleasure. I've loved this conversation as well. I think there's so many questions and this is lovely, isn't it? When you have a discussion and you walk away and there's so many questions and, then, and, and, and also there are some, there are some concepts for me in my Thank you so much, Ali, for your time. I really appreciate it. And I'm happy we get to do it again sometime. I'd love to do it. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Ali. Have a good